Paul's letter to the churches in, uh, in Galatia. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. This is the word of the Lord. As we sit, let's pray. Psalm 19 contains a section in praise of God's law and concludes with this prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. As Andrew has explained, uh, we're continuing our series on the God with whom we have to do. And the focus of this series is on different aspects of God's relationship with his creatures. How does God interact with us? Last month, we explored the fact that he is a God who speaks to us, emphasizing his desire to communicate, to enter into conversation with us. 
And this morning we're going to focus on one aspect of that conversation, the articulation of the law. Now that's not exactly an auspicious place to start. People don't like law, and regrettably they tend to have a low regard for lawmakers and lawyers. And the cry for deregulation has become a political mantra, especially if it's attached to the word Brussels. Our dislike is almost instinctive. We want to perfect our freedom to do what we like. A few years ago, the exit from Bell Broughton Road onto Banbury Road was altered, and left turns into Banbury Road were prohibited. I was more than a little amused at how many people, including several from this church, protested vigorously that this was an infringement of their liberty. So when it comes to ways in which God relates to us, we're pretty comfortable with the idea that he loves us, that he's gracious towards us, that he's good, that he's kind to us, but law, not sure that's what we want at all. At the Veritas Forum three weeks ago, the atheist Christopher Hitchens asked with a great rhetorical flourish, why should we take any notice of a God who tells us what to do, impinging on our autonomy and freedom? And he then followed that up with, do we really need a God to tell us not to kill or steal? Isn't that just common sense if human beings are to live together in harmony? Now I have to say that those present noted that he did not mention the prohibitions of adultery or coveting. And if those are no more than common sense, there must be a lot of stupid people in our world. <laughs> but the question remains, why is the law so significant in God's relation with his people? After all, it takes up most of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And it remains to this day the foundation of the Jewish faith. So a number of points about the law in the Old Testament. First note that the law is given in the form of what technically is a covenant treaty, which was common in the ancient Near East. Very simply, if a ruler subjugated a territory, then he would make a treaty, somewhat of a forced treaty, with its inhabitants. And he would covenant on the one hand to defend them from other aggressors, and they in turn would pay him substantial tribute and obey his laws. The whole book of Deuteronomy is in treaty form. And so, in a very attenuated version, are the Ten Commandments, which Albert read for us. Let me just remind you of the first two verses of chapter 20 of Exodus. And God spoke all these words, and interestingly enough, words there is precisely the languages used of covenant stipulations. And then he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. In verse 2, God asserts his authority as the Lord your God and explains it from the history of the Exodus. What then follows in the other verses which are well known to us are God's requirements in terms of loyalty to him, especially in the people's worship, but also in terms of social relationships. If you like, 
The Ten Commandments are like the headings of the Covenant Treaty and many other detailed provisions for both worship and social organization follow. Now, sometimes those are difficult to understand because we simply don't have access to the context in which they were given. So we need to look for the principles and apply them by analogy. Now, if we do that analysis, what emerges is an outline of a peaceful and ordered society under the gracious rule of God himself. You see, given human sinfulness, the alternative to a society governed by law is either anarchy or authoritarian and arbitrary rule. The failed state of Somalia is an example of the former, where rival gangs fight for control of territory. North Korea is an example of the latter, where the dear leader, Kim Jong-il, ruthlessly controls the lives and of his starving and oppressed people. You see, what happens without the law is that power and control of resources are driving people. And it's usually, of course, the men who win. But why does it have to be God's law? In a television program a few months ago, Anne Widdicombe was trying to convince, uh, commend the Ten Commandments to a skeptic, or at least the Five Commandments that deal with social relations. And his response was to point out that similar injunctions were to be found in a large number of other cultures. Exactly the same point was made some time ago by C.S. Lewis. But this should not surprise us. God is not imposing a code that is arbitrary and life-denying. On the contrary, his code, his law, is conducive to human flourishing. But there is an added dimension. God's law comes with divine sanction. He requires us to live according to his commandments, and failure to do so attracts his judgment. But what are we to make of the common complaint that the commandments are generally negative? Thou shalt not. It is a characteristic of Hebrew thought that negative implies encouragement to a positive. In Luke 6, Jesus put it like this, I ask you, what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Notice, it's either or. There's no passive middle ground. A young man was attending a communion service with a predominantly elderly congregation. And he was heard to mutter in response to thou shalt not commit adultery, who would want to with this lot? <laughs> Understandable, perhaps, if a bit risque. But the point is, refraining is not enough. The injunction not to kill is not satisfied by merely abstaining from homicide. It requires us to seek reconciliation with our enemies and to actively promote the life and flourishing of our neighbor. 
One excellent feature of prayer book revision in the 1970s in Britain was a version of the Ten Commandments that balanced the negatives with the positives, most of them drawn from the teaching of Jesus. So, you shall not steal had the counterpoint, be honest in all you do and care for those in need. And you shall not commit adultery was balanced by know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament law then was God's provision for his people in the context of his covenant with them. Its purpose was to promote a powerful, a peaceful and ordered community, countering the anarchy and oppression that arise from human sinfulness. And its stipulations were designed not only to prohibit bad behavior, but also, and equally, to encourage good. We still have much to learn from Old Testament law about how we conduct our community life. Well, after that, which seems quite positive, the tone of St. Paul's discussion of the Mosaic law in Galatians 3 comes as a surprise. It paints a much more negative picture. Now, note that Paul, as a Pharisee, would have known a great deal about the law. By the first century AD, the law had been codified and extended to include more than 600 instructions just for daily life. I don't know whether anyone in Jerusalem at the time was campaigning for deregulation, but I guess it could have been very popular. And so in Galatians 3.19, Paul asks, what was the purpose of the law? What then was the purpose of the law? And his response is simply, it was added because of transgressions. I think that's the point we've already noted. It's there to counter our sinful proclivities, to keep them in check. But what it cannot do is enable us to lead a good life. And that point Paul makes in verse 21, the second half. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. The point being that the law has this negative aspect, but it doesn't necessarily enable us to live a truly good life. And that, of course, is hugely discouraging, as it highlights our moral failures. As Paul knew well from his experience and from the history of the people of the Old Testament, human beings fail to keep God's law. We are, according to verses 22 and 23, prisoners of our sinful natures. The analogy with a prisoner strictly confined under a military guard. We are trapped. We are unable to live up to God's moral standards. But according to Paul, that, paradoxically, is a good thing. Look at verse 24. 
So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The reference here is to what in Greek is called a paedagogos. Uh, in wealthy Greek households, a slave had responsibility to supervise the activities of an unruly son as he grew up to keep him from bad behavior. I suspect a lot of uh, parents of teenage children today would quite like a paedagogus in the household. And their role was not that of a teacher, as the older translations had it, but as a disciplinarian. They're often depicted in Greek art with a harsh mien and a very big stick. So is, why is that role for the law a good thing? Because it induces in us a longing to escape from being prisoners, from being under the cosh of the law. And that throws us back to God's promise. Our only hope is to put our faith in Jesus Christ, who fulfills the promise God had made to Abraham hundreds of years before. And what is that promise? It is a promise of relationship with God that is not based on what we do in seeking to please him, to lead good lives, to be useful citizens. It is the promise of verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Some time ago, I heard an interview with the leader of a mountain rescue team in the Lake District. He said that their busiest times were bank holiday weekends with a forecast of good weather. Inexperienced walkers took to the mountains and got into difficulties. They reached a point where they felt it was too dangerous to go forward, but equally too dangerous to retrace their steps. They were trapped. And they would have then, of course, used their mobile phone to summon help to guide them safely down the mountain. Now, the analogy with being trapped by the law is, of course, imperfect. The walkers are trapped by the physical environment of the landscape, which is not the same as the realization that our attempts to lead a good life are not succeeding. But the analogy does work at three key points. First, our difficulties, because we believe that we can find the right path through life on our own. Second, our desperation of being trapped with no obvious escape route from our moral difficulties. And then, our call for help for someone to get us out of here. But faith in Jesus not only provides a way out, he also offers freedom. Look with me again at verse 25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You see, our innate desire to be free from law and regulation is actually a right desire. We were made for freedom, to live in relationship with God as his sons and daughters. And that includes living lives that are consistent with his law, 
not because we are constrained to do so, because that is what our hearts and our wills dictate as his sons and daughters. Lives that are good and satisfying for us, for our families, our church, and our communities. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that our faith in you may be strengthened so that we may no longer be prisoners of our moral failings, but experience more fully our freedom as your children. Amen.